Welcome back to our Sunday School series in the Minor Prophet Zechariah. Today we're going to be in chapter 12 of Zechariah. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 8. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Zechariah 12, verses 1 through 8. I will read that for us as we begin today. Zechariah chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. The oracle of the word of Yahweh concerning Israel. Thus says Yahweh, who stretched out the heavens and who established the earth and who created the spirit of man in his innards. Behold, I have set Jerusalem as a threshold of stumbling to all of the peoples surrounding it. And also against Judah shall be the siege against Jerusalem. And it shall be on that day that I shall set Jerusalem as a heavy stone for all of the peoples. And all who try to lift it shall certainly be wounded. And all of the nations of the earth shall be gathered against it. On that day, declares Yahweh, I shall strike every horse with panic and his chariot with madness. But on account of the house of Judah, I will open my eyes and every horse of the other peoples I shall strike with blindness. And the leaders of Judah shall say in their hearts, My strength is with those who dwell in Jerusalem, in Yahweh of hosts their God. On that day I shall set the leaders of Judah like a pot of fire among the trees, or like a torch of fire among the sheaves. And they shall consume to the right and to the left, and all of the people surrounding. And Jerusalem shall once again Dwell in its place in Jerusalem. And Yahweh shall rescue the tents of Judah as from of old, so that the glory of the house of David shall not surpass the glory of those who dwell in Jerusalem upon Judah. On that day, Yahweh will protect those who dwell in Jerusalem. And the one who stumbles among them on that day shall be like David, and like the house of David, and like God himself like the angel of Yahweh before them. Let's pray as we uh, get into this text. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the prophet Zechariah, and we pray that you'd help us to understand his message today. Uh, We pray that you would open your word to us. We pray all of these things in the holy and precious name of Jesus. Amen. Well, folks, today we begin uh, the final section of the prophet of Zechariah. We, uh, first of all, just to go over a bit of the outline of Zechariah to sort of remind us of where we've been. Uh, in the first six, six verses of Zechariah, way back in chapter 1, chapter 1, verses 1 through 6, was the call to repentance, where Zechariah is calling this post-exilic community of the Israelites to repent and to turn back to God. Because you remember, the people of Zechariah's day are the people of the Israelites who have recently come back from the Babylonian exile. They were taken into Babylon for a few decades, and now they've been released by Persia, who conquered Babylon, and they brought all the people back to Israel, or at least the people that wanted to come back. They allowed to return. And so chapter 1 is a call to repentance. And then we have after that the eight night visions. And you remember those are very, very uh, picturesque, right? We had... We had flying horses, and we had different colored horses, and we had a woman in a basket, and we had a golden lampstand, and all kinds of 
of seemingly crazy things going on that were all teaching messages to Zechariah's readers. And after the eight night visions, we then had problems in the land and restoration in chapters 7 and 8 of Zechariah. And we learned about uh, some of the prophecies about how um, the success in the land and the harvest and the fruitful plenty and all of those sorts of things were pointing forward to the coming of the church, which would really be the true harvest uh, for God's people. And then in chapters 9, 10, and 11, we had the first prophetic oracle, and we finished that up last week. And the first prophetic oracle in those three chapters was primarily pronouncing judgment on the people of Israel. And it was pronouncing judgment on the people of Israel because they were becoming very complacent. They were happy to be back in their own land, but they weren't wholly following Yahweh. And so God was pronouncing judgment on them in the first prophetic oracle, by and large. Now here, today, in chapter 12, we begin the second prophetic oracle of Zechariah. And this is going to take us all the way to the end of the book, chapters 12, 13, and 14. The second prophetic oracle. And it's in this oracle that we have a more of a sort of a turn. And instead of judgment on God's people in this oracle, we now have uh, a promise of redemption for those who are faithful to God. And so we have sort of this, this shift going on. Now, there's still some judgment here in the second oracle, uh, especially in regards to judgment on other nations. But particularly, we have a promise for God's people of redemption and strength if they trust in their God. And so today we have uh, in these first eight verses of chapter 12, essentially three sections that I've divided these verses into. Firstly, we have the stumbling block, and that's going to be verses one through two, chapter 12. Then in verses three through six, we have protection. And then verses seven through eight, salvation. Again, if you're writing those down, stumbling block, protection, and salvation. We're going to see how all of these pieces come together to teach us that although God makes his people a stumbling block to the world, he protects his people from these worldly enemies. Okay? And we're going to see how that works out here in just a second. So just, again, to set a bit of context, the first prophetic oracle of Zechariah is mostly about judgment. So that's what we've seen mostly in these preceding three chapters, 9, 10, and 11. And now here in chapter 12, Zechariah moves more in the direction of the promise of redemption and the promise of protection and salvation from God. And so let's see what Zechariah has to tell us here under the inspiration of the Spirit. Verse 1, an oracle of the word of Yahweh concerning Israel. Thus says Yahweh, who stretched out the heavens and who established the earth and who created the spirit of man in his innards. This, of course, is just establishing who God is, right? Zechariah is like, hey, don't forget who this is, this Yahweh person. Who is this God that you Israelites need to be serving? Oh, yeah, he's the God who stretched out the heavens. He's the God who made the earth and who indeed created the spirit of man. That is, he created man. This is a great God we're talking about, the God who formed you. Pay attention. Here's what he has to say to you. Verse 2, the stumbling block. Behold, I have set Jerusalem as a threshold of stumbling to all the peoples surrounding it. 
Now, some of you, if you're using um, uh, the ESV as your translation, you'll notice that it translates this as a cup of staggering. A cup of staggering. So they have the staggering part right, the stumbling part right, but the first word there, they translate as staggering, or excuse me, they translate as cup. Now, that's uh, certainly possible. The Hebrew word that's showing up in the text here is the word saf or sof. And that word can certainly be translated in some context as cup, as it is in various places. But Calvin points out in his commentary on Zechariah that not only is this word to be translated sometimes as cup, but actually a lot of times it can also be translated as threshold. Now, uh, I don't know if you know what a threshold is. Some of you might, but for those of you who don't, the threshold is sort of like a piece of stone or a piece of wood that's in the doorway of, of any particular door. So if you open up a door in, like, say, on ships, like cruise ships, or you open up the door in some old houses sometimes, sometimes you've got, like, a piece of wood that is underneath the door. And that particularly is just there to sort of uh, insulate the door in some way. Um, or maybe it's just there because of the way that the people built the house. But in any case, it's sort of an elevated piece uh, in the doorway, and sometimes that causes you to trip. So if you're in public places that have a threshold in their doors, there'll usually be a big red sign next to the door that says, watch your step, right, so you don't trip on it. Uh, Lots of uh, cruise ships will have this kind of threshold of stumbling, as Zechariah calls it, an elevated piece of ground that you trip on sometimes if you're not paying attention. And that's what Yahweh says here in verse 2, that he is going to make Jerusalem. Jerusalem is made a stumbling block. That's how I think I'd I'd translate this, essentially. It's just to make sure everyone understands it in English. Jerusalem is a stumbling block. The people of God are essentially going to be a nuisance to the other nations. A pesky, uh, annoying existence in the minds of the world. And this, of course, isn't just true in Zechariah's day, is it, right? I mean, in our own day, we as Christians are oftentimes seen as stumbling blocks, as that annoying chunk of wood in a doorway that people trip over. The people of God are annoying to the world, and indeed, we are even at times hated by the world. Christ promised that that was going to happen, that we'd be hated by the world. This is not just true in the New Testament, right? This is true in the Old, too. The concept of Jerusalem, as we've seen throughout Zechariah and as I've continued to point out along the way, is a concept that refers specifically to God's people in general, right? It doesn't have specific reference to the city of Jerusalem, but rather the primary um, full fullness of this term, Jerusalem, is seen in the concept of God's people, which we would call today the church, And so what God says here is that he has made Jerusalem, that is, he has made his own people, his true followers, his church, if you will, a stumbling block to the nations, a stumbling block to the world, a stumbling block to those who are of the flesh. And indeed, the world's response to us as a stumbling block. The world's response to the people of God as a stumbling block is expressed at the end of verse 2 in that they are going to um, make themselves into a siege. And we as the people of God are going to find ourselves in a position where we are under siege. We are being attacked by the armies of the world. Now, what are 
the people of God to do when they find themselves under siege? What are the inhabitants of this spiritual Jerusalem, if you will, uh, to do when they find themselves under siege? Well, here comes the promise, the promise of protection in verses 3 through 6. Listen to how God describes what he does for his people, both in the Old and in the New Testaments. Here's what he does. It shall be on that day that I shall make Jerusalem a heavy stone to all the peoples, and all who try to lift it shall surely be wounded, and all of the nations of the earth shall gather themselves against it. Notice what's being said here, that God is going to make Jerusalem, when when it's under siege, when Jerusalem comes under siege, God is going to make that city like a heavy stone that people can't lift. They'll try. The nations, the the worldly people are going to come. They're going to try to pick up that stone of Jerusalem. And they're going to hurt themselves doing it. They will be wounded. They won't be able to destroy it. I love love, uh, looking at the Hebrew here. I love what it says in the text. Um, Some of your English translations, it might just say that they shall be wounded. That is the the people who try to lift this heavy stone of Jerusalem. But in the Hebrew, it says that they shall be wounded, wounded. The word shows up twice. It's very emphatic, very much trying to, to bring out the surety of what's going to happen to those who try to come against God's people. What's going to happen? Well, they're not just going to be wounded. They will be wounded, wounded. That is, there's not just a, a possibility that they will get hurt. But rather, it is absolutely fixed and certain that anyone who brings a charge against God's elect, whoever attempts to siege this city of Jerusalem, is going to fail. And they will be wounded. Now here, I've said it before and I'll say it again. In Zechariah, the city of Jerusalem is not specifically referring to the earthly city of Jerusalem. Right? This concept of Jerusalem that is permeating Zechariah is not about the physical city. If it were about the physical city, then these prophecies would be false. Because there was a great army that came to Jerusalem and laid siege to it in history. And that was the Roman army in 70 AD. And guess what happened? Rome conquered Jerusalem. Now, you can imagine what the Jews would think if they looked at these prophecies in Zechariah and they assumed that they'd be fulfilled literally, literally in the city, that the literal Jerusalem would be protected by God. If the Jews thought that, and indeed many of them did think that, you can understand why they would hold out so long in trying to keep the Romans out of the city. And they did do that because they did think that this prophecy was literal. And they failed to see that this prophecy was not primarily literal, but rather it is spiritual. Zechariah does not have in view here the physical city of Jerusalem, that that Jerusalem in, in Israel is going to be protected, but rather that the spiritual reality that this term Jerusalem points to is going to be protected. That is the people of God, the people who actually dwell in God's chosen city, his church, if you will, his people. They're the ones that are going to be protected. And whenever anyone tries to siege God's people, God is going to protect them. And those those people of the world, the other nations, 
They're the ones that when they come against us, they will fail. They're the ones that will be conquered. They will surely be wounded. No one shall destroy God's people. This is a great lesson for us, by the way, just to remember that in Scripture, very rarely is prophecy to be interpreted literally. Very rare. There are a few exceptions to that, but it's exceedingly rare that prophecy is to be interpreted literally. And we need to remember that. Anytime we're approaching biblical prophecy, we need to understand that the vast majority of prophecies in Scripture are fulfilled spiritually. And that's a very important point that we can take to the bank whenever we approach biblical prophecy and all the, all the books that um, we may consult for that. Um, okay, so anyway, that is protection. God will make Jerusalem a heavy rock, and anyone who tries to move it, it will surely be wounded. And God says here, he promises, in verse 4, <clears throat> just continuing this theme, that on the day of siege, on the day that, that the armies of the other nations come and approach God's people, that God will throw all the enemy horses and chariots into confusion. <laughs> He's going to essentially wipe out the armies. He'll throw them into confusion. And the leaders of God's people will consume their enemies. And so in this way, God protects his people not only by acting himself and by throwing our enemies into confusion, but God actually also protects his people by empowering leaders to meet the attacks of the enemy. And not only does God employ leaders, and not only does God act himself to protect his people, but he actually makes his people into uh, what we're told here, a pot of fire. And like a torch of fire that just blaze through and burn and destroy everything. See, folks, this is what we are as God's people when we're confronted with enemies, whatever form they may be in. We're like fire that just consumes to the right and to the left, destroying all of our enemies quickly and efficiently. Now, sometimes it doesn't seem like that, does it? Right? Sometimes it seems like the enemies in the world today are sort of overcoming us, like we're losing the battle. And it's in times like this, folks, that we need to hold on to these promises in Scripture. That even though in the scope of our finite minds and in our, uh, our inability to, to step out of our own time zone, we're so bound up in what we see and what we feel and what we understand right now. But folks, the promises of God are coming from his viewpoint, which is from eternity. And if God, in his eternal viewpoint, says something different than what we might think in our little, finite, tiny viewpoints, then we need to trust what God says. Because God says that he will make us, when we're attacked, like blazing fire pots that just annihilate our enemies. That is who we are as God's people. And so that's how God protects. He, first of all, he executes protection himself by throwing enemies into confusion. He raises up leaders to protect his people. And then thirdly, he makes us like flaming fire pots and flaming torches that just consume the sheaves. It's amazing, amazing imagery here. Now, thirdly, we get to verses 7 and 8, the final verses. And those verses are about salvation. Here we go. And Yahweh 
will save the tents of Judah as from of old, so that the glory of the house of David shall not surpass the glory of those who dwell in Jerusalem and upon Judah. Now, some of your English translations, um, particularly the ESV is what I was looking at here. You may notice that in verse 7, it will say that the Lord will save the tents of Judah first. You may notice that in your English text, it uses the word first. And I looked up a few translations, the NASB, uh, the King James, the uh, American Standard Version, and so on. And they all have the translation that Yahweh will save the tents of Judah first. Now, I thought that was very interesting because I also looked up what the Septuagint says as it translates verse 7. Now, if you're not familiar, the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. You remember that the Old Testament is written in Hebrew and a little bit of Aramaic, so very um, Semitic Jewish languages. Um, And the New Testament is written in Greek. And a, a couple hundred years before the New Testament was written, there were a group of scribes that engaged in a project of translating the Old Testament from Hebrew into Greek. And so uh, we have the Septuagint today, uh, that Greek translation of the Old Testament. And it's very fun to go, if you know Greek, to go and look at that translation because it tells you a lot about how some of those ancient scholars understood the Old Testament because you watch how they translate certain things and that can give you good insight as to how to understand the Hebrew text. And so I consulted the Septuagint here, and lo and behold, in um, verse 7, the Septuagint translates it and says, And Yahweh will save the tents of Judah as from of old, or as from the beginning. Now I find that fascinating, because if we understand the verse the way the Septuagint wants us to, then what it says is that Yahweh will save the people of Judah just like he saved them in former times, just like he saved them before. That is, God will save his people just like he did in the olden times, just like he did in the previous age, just like he did before when he brought them out of Egypt, let's say, or when the kingdom of Judah was acting sinfully and God sold them into slavery of another nation. This happened a bunch of times in the um, Samuel and Kings, particularly for the kingdom of Judah in the book of First and Second Kings. Um, And so what happened was the people fell into sin, and then God rescued them. God saved them from their slavery when they turned around and repented. And I think that's what Zechariah has in view here, that God will save the people of Judah now in this post-exilic community, just like he did in former times. And that's significant because that's exactly what the faithful people want, right? They're wondering, they're, they're under the bondage and the slavery of Persia. They're not their own nation right now, Zechariah's audience. They are in bondage to Persia. And Persia's being fairly nice to them compared to Babylon, but they're still not their own nation. There's no Davidic king on the throne. They are uh, a servant nation in bondage to Persia. And what they want is for God to free them, to bring them freedom, just like he did in the former times. So I think that's a better way to understand this passage. And so what God promises to do here is that he will save them just like he did in former times. And he will do this in order that the glory of the house of David shall not be greater or shall not surpass the glory of those who dwell in Jerusalem 
that is in Judah. And so God's going to save them, just like he did in former times, so that David would no more be able to glory in his own wartime success than Judah. Because neither David nor Judah could depend on great armies to protect them from their enemies, because they had to rely on God. God would protect them. So what God is saying is that just like I saved David, and just like I saved the house of David in former times from their enemies, not because they had such great armies, but because they trusted in me, so I will save you, not because you have great armies, but because you trust in me. You see, there's a promise of salvation for those who put their trust in Yahweh. And this promise of salvation is sort of couched in wartime language and siege language. And that's how the, the uh, Old Testament often teaches us very important lessons. It uses language of Israelite prosperity in order to signal to us spiritual prosperity for those who are of the people of God. Remember, way back in part one of this Zechariah series, in our introductory session, I made this point that this was going to come up, and it has, and it has once again. And that is that the Old Testament frequently, when it wants to describe spiritual promises, it will use normal uh, Israelite prosperity language to tell us that. If the Bible wants to tell us about God's blessings for the Christian— it will sometimes talk about Israel's blessings of fruitfulness in the land of Canaan. Why is that? Because it's very rich imagery. And because it's a type that points to the antitype, which is the great spiritual blessings that we have in Christ. Finally, then, we come to verse 8 where it says, On that day, that is on the day that God comes and destroys the enemies, God or Yahweh, will protect those who dwell in Jerusalem. That is, he's going to protect his people. And the one who stumbles on that day, he shall be like David and the house of David and like God himself and like the angel of Yahweh before them. Look at this great promise where God says, look, all of my people, all of those who live in this spiritual Jerusalem, all of those, all of my elect, even the weakest ones, the ones who stumble, the ones who fall, the ones who are frail, even they shall be as strong as David, the great king of Israel. They shall be strong like the house of David. They shall be strong like Elohim, the Hebrew says. They shall be strong like God. They shall be strong like the angel of Yahweh, who, if you remember, is Jesus Christ. They shall be strong like David, like the house of David, like God himself, and like the angel of Yahweh before their enemies. Talk about salvation, my friends. Talk about God's protection. This is the promise that we have as God's people, that when enemies come, when we are sieged, by the devil, the world, and our own flesh. We need to remember this promise that as believers, as God's people, God's elect, we are strong, not in our own strength, but rather in the strength that God gives us because God will make us strong enough to protect us from whatever 
he in his providence throws at us. We will be a stumbling block to the world. But when they come at us, we have protection and salvation in our almighty God. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you for Zechariah. We thank you for um, your great truth here. Lord, we pray that even though uh, the world will hate us, even though the world will attack us and siege us, Lord, we pray that you would make us strong. You would make us like pots of fire. You would help us to vanquish our enemies through you. And Lord, we pray ultimately that you would receive all of the glory for everything that you do. And we thank you, Father, for the great protection and salvation that you give to us in Christ. We pray all of these things in the holy and precious name of Jesus. Amen.